all of us are aware of a yearning to care for others in our lives. And all of us are aware of a yearning to care for ourselves. And sometimes they may appear to be in conflict. We may find that when we attempt to care for others, there's some sense of deficiency, some sense of not caring for ourselves. And we may find that when we attempt to care for ourselves, there's some sense of selfishness, some sense of not extending ourselves. And there may be some degree of conflict around this area. In meditation, we practice for ourselves and we practice for the benefit of all beings. This is something that the Buddha once told as a story. There was once a pair of jugglers who performed their acrobatic feats on a bamboo pole. One day the master said to the apprentice, now get on my shoulders and climb up the bamboo pole. When the apprentice had done so, the master said, now protect me well and I shall protect you. By protecting and watching each other in that way, we shall be able to show our skill, make a good profit, and safely get down from the bamboo pole. But the apprentice said, Not so, master. You, O oh master, should protect yourself, and I too shall protect myself. Thus, self-protected and self-guarded, we shall safely do our feats. This is the right way, said the Blessed One, and spoke further as follows. It is just as the apprentice said, I shall protect myself. In that way, the foundations of mindfulness should be practiced. I shall protect others. In that way, the foundations of mindfulness should be practiced. Protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. And how does one, in protecting oneself, protect others? by the repeated and frequent practice of meditation. And how does one, in protecting others, protect oneself? By patience and forbearance, by a nonviolent and harmless life, by loving-kindness, by compassion. So this is what I would like to speak about tonight, is this interconnectedness Basically, what this sutra is saying is that in caring for others, we do care for ourselves. In caring for ourselves, we naturally do care for others. And there is indeed this interconnectedness occurring in a life of meditation. There are three particular areas that this may be applied to. One of these areas has to do with refraining from harm, using our bodies and speech in such a way that there is no harm happening. Another way is in training the heart, training the mind. And the third way is through wise action, action that comes out of wisdom, knowingness. 
So this first area, refraining from harm, we see in, from, in refraining from harming others, we are caring for ourselves. It's connected in that way. In caring for others, we naturally care for ourselves. And we see that in the areas of using the body in ways that don't hurt others, what arises out of this is the gift of security, of sureness. There's a strong degree of self-trust and self-respect that arise out of restraint, out of refraining from harm. Certainly this is true when it comes to the body. It's very much true when it's applied to speech, when we speak in a true way, when we refrain from exaggeration or from understating. We gain the gift of clarity. We gain the gift of directness, of truth. When we speak in a way that is non-divisive, that doesn't pit one person another against another, we gain a gift of dignity, of self-respect. Certainly, in this area of non-divisiveness, we can see it so clearly that when we're with someone that we know is not speaking about another person in a divisive, harsh way, we feel trust that this person perhaps won't speak about us in that same way to someone else. So we gain the gift of of self-trust, of self-respect in this. There is an ease of mind, a confidence. There is a grace. And there is a fearlessness. We become women without fear through the intention to use our speech in ways that are caring, in ways that are non-harmful. In this area of speech, of wise speech, of using speech in a way that is truthful, is non-divisive, is not harsh, is useful. It also can be applied to saying that which is true, speaking when it is time to speak, which can be quite difficult. So it's not only through the refraining from or the restraint. It's certainly through speaking when it is time to speak, receiving the gifts of strength, and once again receiving the gifts of self-trust, of respect. Some time ago I was here, some years ago now, I was here on a retreat, a one-month self-retreat. And in the midst of my time here, a retreat occurred taught by a Thai meditation monk. And during the retreat, gradually, it kind of took me a while, but gradually it dawned on me that the message that was very clearly being put forth was that the best way and the only real true way to walk this path is by ordaining as a monk, which kind of leaves women out in the cold. And so I looked at the various options that I felt I had in this situation, 
one of which was to fall into passivity and to try and transcend it and to pretty much ignore that it was happening, (laughs) which is an option that, that some take. And another option was to fall into reactivity, into anger, and to kind of encourage or fan the anger about what it was that was happening. And so I decided to try something new for me. What I did was I sat in the middle of the hall rather than up front so I couldn't have kind of a, an intimate chat with this person. But I sat in the back of the hall, the middle of the hall, so I would have to speak loudly. And I simply asked why, in a respectful way. I simply asked why. And there was something that occurred merely through the dialogue that was both illuminating and freeing and left me with some sense of integrity. Um, For me, it was a new way of working with this because there was reservations. There were reservations about working with it in this way. There was fear. And at the same time, there was the very clear sense that if I left without questioning, and without questioning in a very visible way, not in an invisible, quiet, chat kind of way, but in a very clear, visible way, if I left without doing this, there would be some fragmentation that would be happening, some place in which there would be a lack of confidence, a lack of ease, less dignity. All of the gifts that the practice has given so far felt that they had to be put into practice in that moment. And so it was a very, very interesting exercise, one that I didn't totally enjoy. And one that I saw quite clearly was absolutely necessary. And again, there was something in the very dialogue. It's not that anything changed, not at all. And (laughs) these are years and years of conditioning that we're, we're talking about, and cultures and things like this. But there was something in me that was whole. Um, There was something quite freeing about the whole situation. So to refrain from speech, and to speak, the art of learning when to do which. In the area of training the heart, of training the mind, this is really the realm of meditation. And this is where, in caring for ourselves, we do care for others. Very clearly, we are caring for others in caring for ourselves in the realm of meditation. It is actually the deepest way that one can care for oneself. (coughs) There are many other ways that are necessary. The practice of meditation perhaps is the deepest way that it is possible for one to care for oneself. Because in the practice of meditation, we are caring for our hearts We are caring for the torments that we perceive within the heart. We are easing, we are learning about the torments of the heart, and we are seeing that we don't have to, we don't have to continually live our life in a tormented way, that there is a very different way of life, there is a very different way of being. 
in the realm of meditation. We are not abandoning ourselves. We are learning from moment to moment how to not leave ourselves behind, to not abandon ourselves. This is a very deep and profound act in each moment that we take on, simply to not leave ourselves behind. And in each moment, we are caring for whatever it is that is happening, whether it is wonderful, whether it is very painful, whether there is grief, whether there is anger, whether there is ecstasy. We're caring for it all. We're not abandoning ourselves in the best of moments. We're not abandoning ourselves in the worst of moments. We're not abandoning ourselves in the seemingly trivial or insignificant, boring moments. We're with ourselves all the time. There's that intention. There's that intention. It's not that we're always there. (laughs) Clearly, we're not. And there is this intention that we form over and over again to not abandon ourselves. We can care for our anger. We can care for our despair. We can care for our joy. We can bring mindfulness to everything that arises. When we're caring for our anger, we are, in this moment, caring for others at the same time. We're not following the well-known paths of repression of suppression, which come out in some degree, to some degree, in some way or another, making their presence felt in the world. We're also not taking the well-worn path of immediate expression without reflection. We're caring for our anger as it is, in a very, very loving, gentle way. And in this way, in caring for whatever it is, but for anger. We are, in the same way, caring for others. Because we're not simply allowing it to be a presence in the world. We're taking care of it. We're caring for it ourselves. And so in that, there is some degree of movement. Even if the anger remains, there's some degree of movement, of change, of transformation happening in the very observation. It's so powerful to be aware. In the very act of observation itself, change is occurring. In the very movement towards touching suffering, whether the suffering is in the form of anger or grief or boredom or sadness or longing or confusion, we're bringing mindfulness to whatever it may be, and we're avoiding pushing it away, rejecting. We're avoiding indulging in or dwelling in. We're being with whatever it is that is occurring in a radically different way, a very different way. It's a way that takes the sting out, takes the charge out, allows us to be in our lives and in the lives of others in a different way in a peaceful way.
in this culture there is such a emphasis, an emphasis put on looking outside ourselves for satisfaction or for happiness, that it's totally radical to care for whatever it is that is arising, loneliness, anger, despair, whatever it may be. I found this in the paper some time ago. I thought it was great. It's um, titled, Finland Bars McDonald's Ad. A Finnish consumer court banned a television advertisement for McDonald's, saying it exploits the loneliness of a child, a court official said. The advertisement shows a young boy unhappily surveying an empty apartment into which his parents apparently plan to move. Despair turns to joy when he sees a McDonald's on the other side of the street. (laughs) And the happy ending shows the boy eating in the restaurant. The court said the advertisement could give the impression that McDonald's products could replace friends or lessen loneliness. (laughs) This is Finland being very enlightened, and it's quite unusual in this world. So to take the root of caring for the moment within ourselves is going against the tide, is a radical act. In caring for each moment in our practice, we learn how to take responsibility for whatever it is that is occurring. Let me read you a very, very short autobiography in five short chapters. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I am in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. (laughs) It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. (laughs) Chapter four, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. And this is what we learn in our practice. This is what we learn in meditation, how to deeply take responsibility for our lives. This has an enormous effect on others. This is just another way in which caring for ourselves is deeply caring for others. Our presence has an enormous effect on one another, much stronger then words or actions, the nicest or sweetest of words or actions, is the presence that we can't help. It just is what it is. And this presence has an enormous effect. We're quite influenced by other other human beings. Thich Nhat Hanh spoke about when people came over here from Vietnam on the boats, and the boats were filled with many, many people, and the seas were very rough and choppy, and they were trying to make their way over from Vietnam to here. 
that if there was one calm person on the boat, it would make an enormous difference. If there weren't, it was a real problem. But one calm person could make an enormous difference in the situation. We might realize that self-realization is not separate from saving others, that saving others is saving ourselves, and that saving ourselves is realizing that which has always been true, that there is an enormous protection in living the truth, in seeing the truth. And this is what the practice of mindfulness is, because it's bringing us into contact with that which is true from moment to moment, through the contact, through the being with whatever it is occurring, it is possible for insight, for intuitive understanding to arise. And to truly see from moment to moment that which is true. There is a great protection in seeing the truth, in not living in illusion, in not living in pretense. We can rest in life as it is, and we can trust in things being exactly as they are. More and more in our practice, this is what we learn, to trust that things are exactly as they are, and it's possible to rest within this. In the third area, wise action. This is applying our understanding. It's acting with wisdom. It's responding in a way that has wisdom in it, in a fluid way. There are no rules or laws or ways that are wise versus ways that are not wise, generally. It's a very fluid response to a particular situation. That is what is required of us in life, is not a fixed idea about how things should be, about how we should be, about how life should be, but a very fluid openness of heart that responds to the moment with wisdom, with flexibility, with fluidity. In this area of wise action, in caring for others, we do care for ourselves. In caring for ourselves, we do care for others. And this is where self and other tend to drop away and not be quite as solid. The Dharma nourishes us, the truth nourishes us deeply, nourishes us. And as we become full, it is quite natural to want to give. It's quite a natural flow. If there is deprivation, if there is isolation, then it is not possible for there to be this natural flow. In our practice, we are nourishing the heart with the food of the Dharma. And then it is a natural movement to give. In giving, we're not really giving. What we're doing is we're practicing our unity with all beings through our ability to respond. There's no one to give in a way. There's no one, no one that we give to. In a way, we're simply practicing our Buddha nature. We're practicing our natural union with all human beings. We're attending to the ordinary, nothing extraordinary, nothing glamorous. 
we're attending to that which is apparent from moment to moment. And we learn to do whatever we can do to sense suffering within ourselves, within others, wherever it is. And there is quite naturally a movement to alleviate the suffering, whether it is in ourselves or whether it is in others. And it's even. In our practice, there is not a movement, it is not a movement from a self-centered orientation to an other-centered orientation. We're not attempting to lose sight of ourselves and to jump into someone else's experience. It's quite easy to get caught in the desires and fears of others. And this is not the movement of practice. This is not where we're going to. We're not moving from a self-orientation into an other-orientation. Instead, we are moving into openness. We are moving into an open orientation to all of life. We are moving into Buddha mind, Buddha heart. We are living Buddha mind, Buddha heart. The Buddha went through a very profound transformation from self-consciousness to openness. That was the path. That was the transformation. Our path is the same. It's no different. It's moving into this openness from self-preoccupation, from self-consciousness. It's moving into an openness, into an open-mindedness in which there are no rules about how things should be, about how we should be, about how others should be. A very close friend of mine who has been practicing for many, many years at this point and has a very deep practice. This person's mother recently died. And this person is extremely touched by the death of the mother. There's an enormous amount of grief, an enormous amount of grief. And what is interesting about this is that there is not so much ego. There is not so much I in the situation around how I should be going through this experience. I'm a meditator. I've been practicing for, you know, carrying one's meditative history on one's back. I should be going through this situation in this particular way. There's very little concept about it. There's very little in terms of form or ideas There is a great deal of openness. There is a great deal of trust in life itself. There is a great deal of trust in the openness to whatever the experience reveals. So it has nothing to do with responding to certain situations with, I can handle this or I can be wise in this way. It is trusting what is. It is this openness. This is what we're moving into is lack of imprisonment, lack of limitation, lack of confines around how we should be, how things should be, how we should be in this situation. There is more of a response, responding in the only way that is possible from moment to moment. So it does not mean that there isn't grief. It does not mean that there isn't anger. It does not mean that there isn't anything. We're living more with whatever it is that is occurring. And there is more and more a trust, a surrender, 
and a deep serenity in the midst of whatever it is that is occurring. In a way, we open to the heart or to the mind as, as an ocean, an ocean that is vast, that is enormous, that we just can't control, even though we may want to say, this wave go that way and this wave go another way. We can't. With the ocean, we just look and we're astounded. We're in some sense of awe, some sense of wonder. We can relate to our minds in the same way as being as an ocean or as being as the sky, like the sky, with this sense of openness, of vastness, being silly to even think about attempting to control or manipulate. It doesn't make any sense. In the same way, it truly doesn't make any sense for us either. When the mind is soft in this way, which is what openness is, this softness, there is a great vulnerability to life. There is a great responsiveness to life itself. In this way, self and other dissolve, and we are open to the flow of life itself. Perhaps this might be called love, this kind of connection, where we are truly being with whatever it is that is happening, whether it is extremely pleasurable or whether it is very difficult, whether there is deep grief or whether it is extremely wonderful or whether it is neither of the two, we are willing to be with our life as it is. And there is this connecting with life itself. Self-consciousness is what stops this from happening. It already is. It's something we fall into in practice. It's something we discover in practice. We're not creating the mind to be a certain way. We're not attempting to fix anything. We're simply seeing things as they are, Buddha nature as it is. And we can see that because of being enslaved by our own thoughts, because of self-consciousness, we move out of step with this vastness, with this awe, with this wonder. Our practice is to see what gets in the way of fulfilling possibilities of essential nature, simply to see what gets in our way. We may see that what separates is blame, is judging, judging ourselves, judging others, judging the way life is. This is separating. When we see this, it dissolves. It's not a changing into something else. It's simply a glimpse into who we already are. We can see that there's no rest in I thinking, in self-preoccupied thought. There's nowhere to rest. There's no way to be at ease. There is a very strong yearning that all of us share This yearning is the yearning towards peace. This yearning is the yearning towards intimacy. It's the yearning towards union, into union. In some old Chinese texts, it's very interesting, they'll talk about a whole story of someone getting free, and then at the end, instead of saying, and the yogi got enlightened, what's said is, and the yogi was intimate. And that's what our practice is, is this intimacy. 
And this is what is possible from moment to moment. It's not something we attain 10 years from now. It is what is available and possible for us right now. In intimacy, it doesn't matter what we're intimate with. There's a natural connection, an intimacy, a directness with whatever it is that we're in contact with. So if this is a tree, there is intimacy with a tree. If this is a color or a rug or a human being or an emotion or a thought, we're intimate with everything. In other words, there is no separation. There is union. There is intimacy. The opposite of intimacy is self-consciousness. If caught in concepts, if self-preoccupied, there is no intimacy. In intimacy, self and other dissolve. Self and other dissolve into openness. In this moment, there can be the lack of separation, the lack of alienation. Let me finish with something by Lao Tzu. Some say that my teaching is nonsense. Others call it lofty but impractical. But to those who have looked inside themselves, this nonsense makes perfect sense. And to those who put it into practice, this loftiness has roots that go deep. I have just three things to teach. Simplicity, patience, compassion. These three are your greatest treasures. Simple in actions and in thoughts, you return to the source of being. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. Compassionate toward yourself, you reconcile all beings in the world. Okay, if we could just sit together for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.